Listening to a podcast from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm Kim Curry, editor in chief of the journal. Welcome to Here's the Issue, featuring the February 2021 issue of the journal. In this podcast, I'll provide the abstracts of the featured articles in the journal. We'll begin this month with a systematic review by Alexandra McConville and Katie Hooven. It's titled Factors Influencing the Implementation of Falls Prevention Practice in Primary Care. Here's the abstract. Background. Patient falls in the primary care setting are a complex problem and are detrimental to the independence and quality of life of older adults. Objectives. The purpose of the integrative review was to identify what factors influence the implementation of fall prevention practice in the primary care setting. This review explores qualitative and quantitative research published between 2004 and 2018 on barriers to fall prevention management in primary care. Data sources. The authors conducted a systematic search of the evidence and identified 18 articles which met the inclusion criteria. Conclusions. Five themes were identified that describe barriers and fall risk management in the primary care setting. These included provider beliefs and practices, lack of provider knowledge, time constraints, patient engagement, and financial issues. Implications for practice. The lack of screening and assessment regarding fall risk identification demonstrates a gap in the management of older adults in primary care. Using the evidence and theory-based Stopping Elderly Accidents, Death, and Injuries Toolkit and Algorithm is an effective method to assist practitioners with fall assessment and preventative measures. Our next feature is a systematic review, and the authors are Bethany Biven, Ashley Waring, and Paul Alves. It's titled, Buprenorphine Compared with Methadone in Opioid-Dependent Pregnant Women, How Does It Affect Neonatal Abstinence Syndrome? Here's the abstract. Background. The growing opioid epidemic in the United States has led to increasingly high rates of neonatal abstinence syndrome. Preliminary studies have shown that buprenorphine maintenance treatment may lead to better outcomes for infants than methadone maintenance treatment. Objectives. The authors gathered recent evidence to answer the following PICO question. In opioid-dependent pregnant women, how does buprenorphine compared with methadone administration affect neonatal abstinence syndrome? Data sources. A literature search was completed in PubMed, Scopus, Embase, and Web of Science databases and limited to the past five years. The following parameters were analyzed in the articles. Neonatal abstinence occurrence, length of hospital stay in days, neonatal abstinence treatment length, and amount of pharmacotherapy administered to treat neonatal abstinence syndrome. Conclusions. In comparison to methadone, buprenorphine exposure in utero is associated with significantly shorter hospital stays for the infant after delivery, shorter length of neonatal abstinence syndrome treatment, and decreased frequency and duration of pharmacotherapy for neonatal abstinence symptoms in the infant. Implications for practice. Based on the findings, a weak recommendation can be made for the use of buprenorphine maintenance treatment over methadone maintenance treatment in opioid-dependent pregnant women. However, further research is necessary to definitively recommend buprenorphine over methadone use in this population, especially regarding the effect of maternal severity of addiction on buprenorphine maintenance treatment and long-term effects of in utero buprenorphine exposure. Next is a quantitative research study by Karen Keston, Maheda Elbana, and Jessica Blakely. 
It's titled Educational Characteristics and Content of Postgraduate Nurse Practitioner Residency and Fellowship Programs. Here's the abstract. Background. Nurse Practitioner Residency and Fellowship Programs are an emerging industry across the country. Purpose. This study aimed to conduct an in-depth exploration about postgraduate nurse practitioner residency and fellowship programs in the United States and to gain an understanding of program characteristics, educational content, and implementation methods to assist NPs in transition to practice. Methods. This exploratory study used a quantitative design to conduct an online survey of program directors of NP residency and fellowship programs to collect data about program characteristics to assist graduates to transition to practice. Descriptive statistics were calculated for continuous variables, whereas frequency and percentage were calculated for categorical variables. Results. Nurse practitioner residency and fellowship programs lack consistency in standards for educational content and delivery methods. Only 26% of the programs were accredited, and the programs were not consistently based on nationally recognized competencies. 90% of the programs relied on didactic and clinical supervision delivery methods. More than 90% of the residents and fellows cared for adults older than 65 years of age and managed chronic diseases. Family nurse practitioner was the most commonly cited population track offered at 73%. Nurse practitioner residency and fellowship programs are sparsely offered in the most rural states with underserved populations. Implications for practice. This study provides data and insight into the emerging industry of postgraduate nurse practitioner residency and training programs for educators and employers. In addition, it informs regulators and decision makers about the quality and consistency of programs and the impact of programs on the care delivered by new graduate nurse practitioners. Our next feature is a quantitative research study by Laura Bordeneau, Chris Skalski, Wan Shin, Suyu Wang, Xiyun Mai, Waki Sun, Karen Morrissey, and David Langdon. It's titled Job Satisfaction Among Oncology Nurse Practitioners. Here's the abstract. Background. One proposed solution to the predicted shortage of oncology nurse practitioners is expanding the role of the oncology NP. However, Role expansion may lead to an increase in work-related stress and a decrease in job satisfaction. It's important to understand oncology NPs' job satisfaction and stress and their intent to leave their job or profession in order to further develop and potentially expand the role. Purpose. The purpose of this study was to determine the main factors that affect job satisfaction, especially the relationship with stress and the intent to leave the oncology specialty. Methods. A convenient sample of responses to a series of surveys administered by the Oncology Nursing Society and residing in the Oncology Nursing Society database was used for this analysis. Exploratory data analysis, principal component analysis, and regression models were applied to explore characteristics of the questionnaires, assess the reliability of the coping skills questionnaire, and find out main factors for their intent to leave. Results. Items in the coping skills questionnaire were internally consistent and stress had a positive effect on NPs' intent to leave. Satisfaction and coping skills were also significant in some models. Higher levels of satisfaction and coping skills resulted in lower levels of intent to leave. Moreover, several demographic factors such as having children, scheduled days off, and patient population also affected the response significantly. Implications for practice. This study provides nursing leaders with information to guide retention of nurse practitioners. Our last quantitative research study this month is by Maggie Glover-Steiff, Sophie Jannon, and Tanya Kahn. It's titled, An Exploratory Descriptive Study of Compassion Fatigue and Compassion Satisfaction, Examining Potential Risk and Protective Factors in Advanced Nurse Practitioners. 
Here's the abstract. Background. Larger patient caseloads and increased workplace responsibility for nurse practitioners may exacerbate factors leading to compassion fatigue. Purpose. The purpose of this study is to analyze the rate of burnout in practicing nurse practitioners by looking at contributing factors that play a role in compassion fatigue and compassion satisfaction. Methods. A nurse practitioner social media platform was used to distribute a survey to a convenient sample of 208 nurse practitioners. Data included the professional quality of life scale tool, demographic data, and protective factor questions. The data were dissected for compassion fatigue and protective factors of compassion satisfaction. Results. The relationship of mindfulness practices and levels of compassion satisfaction was statistically significant. The relationship between support from family, coworkers, and administration and levels of compassion satisfaction was also found statistically significant. A large association was found between the correlation of burnout and support from coworkers. Implications for practice. Findings showed an average to high level of compassion satisfaction with a low to average burnout rate among the nurse practitioners surveyed. There was a direct impact between the amount of support participants received from individual support systems and their level of compassion satisfaction. These findings could be beneficial for new nurse practitioner graduates in establishing a sense of community while reducing the risk for burnout. Our next feature is an educational innovation by Melissa Emke and Erica Sanner-Steyer. It's titled, Improving Attitudes Toward Poverty Among DNP Students, Implementing a Community Action Poverty Simulation. Here's the abstract. Poverty has detrimental effects on health outcomes. Doctorally prepared nurse practitioners are in a position to promote health for patients and communities experiencing poverty. To do so, they must be aware of their own attitudes and to have empathy toward the condition of poverty. Specialized poverty simulations have been successfully used to improve attitudes toward poverty among pre-licensure nursing students, but there is a paucity of evidence exploring the effects of poverty simulations among students in a doctor of nursing practice program. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the impact of a poverty simulation for students enrolled in a DNP program on their attitudes toward poverty. A quasi-experimental pre-test-post-test survey design was used in this curriculum improvement project. A total of 29 DNP students participated in a one-time, four-hour Community Action Poverty Simulation, or CAPS. The simulations presented various challenges faced during one month of living in poverty. The Attitudes Toward Poverty Scale short form was used to measure attitudes toward poverty both before and after the CAPS experience. Descriptive statistics and paired t-tests were used to describe the participant group and measure the impact of the simulation on attitudes toward poverty. Attitudes toward poverty improved overall on all dimensions of the attitudes toward poverty scale short form after the CAPS experience as compared to the pretest, with particular improvement regarding stigmas related to poverty. Statistically significant improvements were detected on four items, and the overall favorable shift in attitudes presents clinically significant results. This poverty simulation experience should be considered for adoption into DNP curricula. Our next feature is a qualitative research study by Kirsten Dickens, Susan Buchholz, Diana Ingram, Rebecca Hamilton, Lynn Braun, Naranjan Karnick, and Melinda Earle. It's titled, Now That You've Got That Coverage, Promoting Use of a Regular Source of Primary Care Among Homeless Persons. Here's the abstract. Background. The growing number of homeless persons in the United States demonstrates greater morbidity and mortality than the population as a whole. Homeless persons are often without a regular source of primary care. 
Homeless persons use emergency departments and are hospitalized at higher rates than non-homeless persons. In 2010, the enactment of the Affordable Care Act expanded access to primary care services. Nurse practitioners were at the forefront of its subsequent implementation. Purpose. The purpose of this qualitative study was to explore the factors that influence establishing and maintaining a regular source of primary care among homeless persons. Methods. In 2017, semi-structured interviews were conducted in a federally qualified health center that serves predominantly homeless persons. Sample. A purposive, convenient sample included adult health center users with an N of 20. The majority of participants were insured, African American, and male. Conclusions. Thematic analysis revealed five factors. Sense of community, mutual patient-provider respect, financial assurance, integrated health services, and patient care teams. To establish and maintain use of a regular primary care source, homeless persons desire to experience a sense of community, feel respected by their provider and staff, and have certainty that costs will not exceed their capacity to pay. Integrated care models that leverage a multidisciplinary team approach support the use of a regular primary care source. Implications for practice. Actualizing achievable strategies that promote the consistent use of a regular primary care source can reduce use of avoidable emergency and hospital-based services, thereby improving health outcomes among homeless persons. The next feature is a quality improvement report by Christopher Kennedy and Diane Jollis. It's titled, Providing Effective Asthma Care at a Pediatric Patient-Centered Medical Home. Here's the abstract. Background. A recent assessment of the national annual burden of the cost of asthma among school-aged children was nearly $6 million. In a Midwestern county, the incidence of childhood asthma was 15.8%, which was above both state and national levels. Local problem. Effective asthma care was not being provided at a rural pediatric patient-centered medical home due to a lack of standardization. This quality improvement initiative aimed to increase the mean effective asthma care score to 78% for patients with asthma over the course of 90 days. Methods. This right care initiative was implemented using a rapid cycle plan, do, study, act methodology. Tests of change in the areas of team engagement, patient engagement, and two process measures were analyzed through chart audits and run charts over four cycles. Likert scale surveys were used to analyze qualitative data. Interventions. Interventions included developing the asthma patient identification tool, implementing an asthma education protocol with TeachBack, creating standardized smart phrases for effective documentation, and initiating asthma care huddles. Results. The delivery of effective asthma care increased to 84%. The number of patients receiving the asthma education protocol increased to 65%, with 80% of the patients participating in effective teach-back sessions. The mean effective documentation score increased to 92%. Conclusions. A standardized approach to asthma care, grounded in evidence-based guidelines, positively affected the delivery of care. Nurse practitioners are effective team leaders for clinical QI initiatives. Our final feature this month is a quality improvement report by Laura Herbert, Alicia Rybar, Cheryl Mitchell, and Cynthia Phillips. It's titled, Discovering Metformin-Induced Vitamin B12 Deficiency in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes in Primary Care. Here's the abstract. Background. Although metformin is the preferred initial pharmacological choice in type 2 diabetes, there's evidence that reveals a link between metformin use and vitamin B12 deficiency. The American Diabetes Association has recently recommended periodic measurement of B12 levels for all patients on metformin. Local problem. 
Medical record data collected for the pre-intervention period showed that only 5% of patients diagnosed with diabetes and on metformin had B12 levels checked at an internal medicine primary care practice. Methods. This was a pre-intervention and post-intervention design using a checklist containing important measures of diabetes control. The project sample population consisted of data of adults with type 2 diabetes aged 18 and older who were prescribed metformin in the previous year at the primary care practice. Interventions. The intervention focused on revising an existing diabetes measures checklist to include a prompt for an annual measurement of B12 levels. Results. There was significant improvement in monitoring vitamin B12 levels and discovery of low vitamin B12 levels. These data show that the number of B12 levels checked increased from 23 during the pre-intervention period to 155 during the intervention. Conclusions. This project supports a conclusion that including a prompt to check B12 levels in an existing checklist increases B12 monitoring in this patient population. Results may encourage other providers to follow the ADA guidelines for monitoring vitamin B12 levels for patients taking metformin. That concludes our feature articles this month. Thanks to all of our listeners, and be sure to look for more podcasts from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners.